I feel like garbage. I feel like utter garbage. And I've been sick for 10 days or nine days, I forget. And I'm not getting any better. And everyone is going to have fun without me. The woman invested in a rope barrier with a green velvet rope that she carried around in her backpack like a tripod. She assembled it when she sat down on the subway. She assembled it at work when she responded to emails. She placed it beside her when she visited the cemetery and in front of the shower when she washed. Her husband sometimes stood on the other side of the rope and watched her rest in bed. When driving in the mountains, she assembled it across her lap like a second seatbelt. There were lynx and black widow spiders in the forests nearby, so she assembled the rope barrier while she bird watched. She heard somewhere to never turn her back on Mother Earth, but it felt okay to do it this way. Eventually, the woman and her family moved into a brick house with a turret and a gargoyle. The woman began to feel an occasional presence, like a heavy judgment or a fallen angel, so she assembled the rope barrier whenever she felt a chill creep up. Her friends called it the meditation median, despair wall, and crossing the line. Her niece called it the slinky barrier. For birthdays, she occasionally received replacement ropes from her family in novelty colors like glow-in-the-dark or snakeskin. The woman brought the rope barrier to functions. If she was seated next to someone who she didn't like, she put it between their chairs. When she ignored phone calls, she assembled it as a symbolic gesture. The woman's sneaky distrust of things grew. Her sister moved to the other side of the country, started practicing mindfulness and seeing a therapist. The sister sent happy letters, and the woman enviously read them in bed while her husband watched. After a while, the woman still used her rope barrier, but it no longer protected her. Her hands shook when she hooked the rope onto the posts. The rope twisted and frayed. The colors faded. She placed the rope barrier between her baby son and dessert until his vegetables were eaten, but he still didn't listen. A man at the airport tried to steal it when she rummaged through her bag. Members of the mafia moved two houses down. The woman put the rope barrier across the porch steps, but the mailman or the wind would knock it down. Termites infested the walls of her house, and what was she supposed to do about that? The woman both despised the rope barrier and hissed at those who approached it. She felt singled out and angry at the things that were bigger than her. It felt now as if she was forced to put herself on sides of things that she encountered and that she often chose the wrong side. She wanted a rope barrier for her rope barrier or a long rope that coiled against her body. No, she didn't want ropes. She wanted curtains and blockades and stacked tires and legal representation. She became irritable and violent. She went into the garden with an axe and started knocking the heads off the sunflowers. She swung it at an ancient oak tree. 
she tried splitting a rock. She imagined the sound of rustling in the distant hedges and pursued the sound with passion. And when she saw the rope barrier, she brought the blade down again and again. Hi, this is Talon. I'm going to read an excerpt of my next novel, Leave Society. This is a part where the protagonist, Lee, is with his parents in Taipei. On the walk back to the train station, Lee's dad bought a red bean cake from a street vendor. Lee criticized his dad for being easily swayed as he ate it. He asked his dad if he could have some. His dad gave him some, and he put it in the trash. His dad walked away and talked to his mom about business. 30 seconds later, Lee began recording a voice memo. He tapped his dad on his arm. I was wrong just now, he said. You lied to me, saying you wanted to eat some, then threw it away. That's wrong, said Lee's dad. It's not that that was wrong, said Lee. Telling you not to eat it was wrong. I can recommend, but I shouldn't control you. His concern is good for you, said Lee's mom to Lee's dad. His concern is for your good, actually, said Lee's mom to Lee's dad. He said to give him half to eat. He lied, said Lee's dad cheerfully. It wasn't half, said Lee. It was a piece. You said you wanted to eat it. That's why I gave it to you. That's fine, said Lee. I'm saying it was wrong to yell at you. You said the cake was bad, said Lee's dad. I wondered why you suddenly wanted to eat it. Yeah, that's fine, said Lee. I was trying to help you a little, but I shouldn't have lectured you. I should have let you eat it. Let me eat, that's good, said Lee's dad. After I recommend, you can eat it, said Lee. Taking a small piece and disposing of it, that's allowed. What about the entire cake, said Lee's dad. The entire cake would be wrong, said Lee. He wishes you to be healthy, said Lee's mom. If you said you wanted the whole thing to eat and took it and threw it away, is that lying to me, said Lee's dad? Yeah, said Lee. That's not allowed. Not allowed, said Lee's dad, excited and friendly. He said he wanted to eat some. I thought, hmm, strange, didn't you say it's poisonous? Strange. Turns out you were lying to me to throw it away. I shouldn't have let you see me throw it away, said Lee. If you want to throw it away, don't let me see, said Lee's dad. Pretend to eat it. But if you didn't see me throw it away, you would think it was good to eat it, said Lee. If you eat it all the time, then definitely, said Lee's dad, trailing off. Eating it rarely, how could anything happen? You need to eat it sometimes, said Lee. Of course, said Lee's dad. When you're old, you'll be even more Yao Gui than me. Yao Gui was a Taiwanese term, meaning literally starving ghost. It referred to people who had strong urges to eat, even when not hungry. I was like you in the past, said Lee. It was until now that I'm not like that. In the past, you were like me, said Lee's dad, earnestly curious. 
Of course, said Lee, I ate a lot of candy as a child. He stopped the recording, titling it Admitting Wrongness. He'd been deliberately apologizing after each time he overreacted, was mean or unhelpful. Later, after a train ride, Lee slid his butt down a metal railing, bypassing five steps, and when he hit the ground, earwax came out of his right ear a little. Look, this fell out of my ear, he said, showing his dad. Da-da, said his dad, and smiled, then laughed a little. Feed it to doo-doo. This fell out of my ear, said Lee, showing it to his mom, then photographed it. His mom asked if he remembered when she dug earwax out of his ear when he was small, lying across her lap. Lee said he did. I like that, he said. Late at night, the cancer fears band together like three, two, one, go. And then I'm up, if I ever went to sleep at all, wondering which one I'm going to get. Ovarian feels likely, but I also believe deeply that I'm a prime candidate for some more humiliating genre, such as rectal. I spent some wonderful dumb years smoking, so don't think I've rolled out long. And because I've always felt like I can't quite move right, bone seems fitting. My mother has leukemia, a blood cancer. Her sister died of colon cancer. Why should I believe I'm getting out of here alive? Being offline is weird. I thought I would get more done, but then I got the flu for half of February. I'm still coughing. I alternated between feeling bored and delirious, and it was hard to concentrate on a book or even TV. I wanted to scroll endlessly through my phone, but it also felt good to not let myself. Now that I'm finally better, I'm enjoying the relative quiet. It's nice when I wait in line, for example, to just wait in line instead of checking Instagram. My phone has become more of a phone. But I do feel strangely adrift, like things are happening that I don't know about. Most of these things I know I don't need to know about. So I've been thinking a lot about what kinds of information we've started to believe we need that we've mistaken for important. I try to take the need versus greed approach to my consumption of goods, food, clothing. But I realized that online it was a free for all. I took all of it in all the time. It's good to feel hungry. I had no idea it was AWP this week until someone told me. Imagine a world where you don't have to know anything about AWP. It's glorious. But I miss the heartfelt, wise, funny, thought-provoking posts of my friends and friends. I miss the cacophony of voices. What amount, I'm wondering, is just enough? I got a diary because I used to be such a careful archivist of myself and somewhere along the line I stopped. I wish there were a tiny bit more space for each entry, but I like how restrictive it is. A haiku almost for every day makes it easy to commit to never skip a day, hopefully for five years. 
At night when I'm imagining I'm dying, I try to pray. Sometimes it's just breathing or saying one word or phrase over and over. Sometimes it's a formal prayer. Sometimes I ask questions or just let my thoughts spool out in a barely conscious way, that very thin winding edge between sleep and wakefulness, the highway one of the mind. Think too hard for a second and you're up, buzzing. Withdraw your attention even slightly and you're asleep. Do you ever keep opening the refrigerator, wishing things were different? I'm noticing that I'm noticing things more, thinking more about how and why I respond in certain ways, examining my instincts, by definition, those mute and dumb footmen of behavior that you don't think about. Here's what. I've discovered that when I'm faced with roughly 85% of tasks, unglamorous, tedious, unremarkable, banal, tiny, large, work-related, domestic, or even creative, my very first impulse is to not only not do the thing, but to furthermore figure out how to permanently never do the thing, how to murder the thing. The impulse may last a nanosecond or a full day or more as I contemplate running away, changing my name, feigning sick, forgetting, misunderstanding, rebelling, quitting, or otherwise losing my religion. I have to go through this. This is a necessary part of my process. It is a way to pretend that I'm dead. It is a kind of dying. Ultimately and always, I do the thing and I try hard to do it well. I gird my loins or whatever that expression is and I go three, two, one. I had babies like this. I wrote a book like this. I go to sleep like this and wake up like this. I get under my own skin. Grit and determination, but first agony and woe. My face may not reflect it, but I'm generally always screaming. Every Wednesday since 2018 started, minus the weeks I was sick, I go to my parents' house and hang out with my mom while my dad is at work. I always ask her at least one question about her life and type into a Word document everything she says in response. I'm astounded by the amount of joy this brings me. She's an amazing question answerer, unafraid to get deep and dark and then pan out and end with a bird or a little joke. Our weekly meeting, during which I also do some work quietly and then we usually also eat lunch together, has created a brand new dimension of our relationship. There are few things in life I love more than routine, few things that deliver me to love, the possibility of love like routine. I used to think something had to make sense before I could undertake it. Now I know, undertake it until it makes sense, until you arrive at meaning. God, art, family, on their own, they make no sense. I do them anyway. The last thing I saw was a hallway ceiling, four feet wide, finished along its edges with a plaster molding that looked like a long row of small fish, each trying to swallow the one ahead of it. The last thing I saw was a crack of yellow sky between buildings, partly obscured by a line of washing. The last thing I saw was the parapet and beyond it the trees. The last thing I saw was his badge, but I couldn't tell you the number. The last thing I saw was a full shot glass slid along by somebody who clapped me on the back. The last thing I saw was the sedan that came barreling straight at me while I thought, it's okay, I'm safely behind the window of the donut shop. The last thing I saw was a boot 
right foot, with nails protruding from the instep. The last thing I saw was a turd. The last thing I saw was a cobble. The last thing I saw was night. I lost my balance crossing Broadway and was trampled by a team of brewery horses. I was winching myself up the side of a six-story corner house on a board platform with a load of nails to the cornice when the weak part of the rope hit the pulley sideways and got sheared. I lost my way in snowdrifts half a block from my flat. I drank a bottle of carbolic acid not really knowing whether I meant to or not. I got very cold and coughed and forgot things. I went out to a yard to try and give birth in secret, but something happened. I met a policeman who mistook me for somebody else. I was drunk on my birthday and I fell off the dock trying to grab a gold piece that looked like it was floating. I was hanged in the courtyard of the tombs before a cheering crowd and people clogging the rooftops of the buildings all around, but I still say that rascal had it coming to him. I stole a loaf of bread and started eating it as I ran down the street, but there was a wad of raw dough in the middle that got caught in my throat. I was supposed to get up early that morning, but I couldn't move. I heard a sort of whistling noise above my head as I was passing by the post office, and that's all I know. I was hustling a customer who looked like a real swell, but when we got upstairs, he pulled out a razor. I owed a lot of rent and got put out, and that night curled up in somebody else's doorway, and he came home in a bad mood. I was bitten by that black dog that used to hang around, and I forgot all about it for six months or so. I ate some oysters I dug up myself. I took a shot at the big guy, but the hammer got stuck. I felt very hot and shaky and strange, and everybody in the shop was looking at me, and I kept trying to tell them that I'd be all right in a minute, but I just couldn't get it out. I never woke up as the fumes snaked into my room. I stood yelling as he stabbed me again and again. I picked up a passenger who braced me in the middle of Broadway and made me turn off. I shot up the bag as soon as I got home, but I think it smelled funny when I cooked it. I was asleep in the park when these kids came by. I crawled out the window and felt sick looking down, so I just threw myself out and looked up as I fell. I thought I could get warm by burning some newspaper in a soup pot. I went to pieces very slowly and was happy when it finally stopped. I thought the train was going way too fast, but I kept on reading. I let this guy pick me up at the party, and sometime later we went off in his car. I felt real sick, but the nurse thought I was kidding. I jumped over to the other fire escape, but my foot slipped. I thought I had time to cross the street. I thought the floor would support my weight. I thought nobody could touch me. I never knew what hit me. They put me in a bag. They nailed me up in a box. They walked me down Mulberry Street, followed by altar boys and four priests under a canopy, and everybody in the neighborhood singing the Liberame Domine. They collected me in pieces all through the park. They laid me in state under the rotunda for three days. They engraved my name on the pediment. They drew my collar up to my chin to hide the hole in my neck. They laughed about me over the baked meats and rye whiskey. They didn't know who I was when they fished me out, and they still didn't know six months later. 
They held my body for ransom and collected, but by that time they had burned it. They never found me. They threw me in the cement mixer. They heaped all of us into a trench and stuck a monument on top. They cut me up at the medical school. They weighed down my ankles and tossed me in the drink. They gave speeches claiming I was some kind of tin saint. They hauled me away in the Ashman's cart. They put me on a boat and took me to an island. They tried to keep my mother from throwing herself in after me. They bought me my first suit and dressed me up in it. They marched to City Hall holding candles and shouting my name. They forgot all about me and took down my picture. So give my eyes to the eye bank, give my blood to the blood bank, make my hair into switches, put my teeth into rattles, sell my heart to the junk man, give my spleen to the mayor, hook my lungs to an engine, stretch my guts down the avenue, stick my head on a pike, plug my spine to the third rail, throw my liver and lights to the winner, Grind my nails up with sage and camphor and sell it under the counter. Set my hands in the window as a reminder. Take my name from me and make it a verb. Think of me when you run out of money. Remember me when you fall on the sidewalk. Mention me when they ask you what happened. I am everywhere under your feet. The first and only time I saw you, it was because someone had called me over, saying, look at this duck. I had been looking at the swan in the nearby pond, admiring its elegance and its mysterious side-eye glance. But I walked over to your pond, and I have to admit, for a duck, you looked ordinary to me at first. You had an orange beak and some brown and white feathers. But what you were doing wasn't ordinary. You were swimming up to a mirror and gazing at yourself, as if you'd locked eyes with something wonderful. The mirror wasn't big, about a foot tall and a few inches wide. It almost looked like a rear-view mirror from a car, placed on its side on this little island in the middle of a pond where you seemed to live now inside the Garden of Ninfa, a short drive from Rome. Our tour guide said, the mirror is there so he doesn't die of loneliness. My group of students and I laughed. Was this for real? The rumor was that you had forgotten to migrate with your flock. The tour guide explained that the mirror was enough now to keep you alive. Whenever you became panicked and too stressed to eat, you could swim up to the mirror and see what you thought was a friend. I don't know how you could forget to migrate. All the wings of your loved ones rising up to the sky in unison. Did you forget to look? A therapist once told me that when I felt depressed, I should go on a walk and look at the sky. 
Something about the fresh air and remembering how small I am was supposed to help me. I think it did, but it occurs to me now that this is the opposite of what you were doing. For you, looking in a mirror is the ultimate comfort. It focuses in, restricting your view to yourself, which you actually perceive as other. This must be where the comfort lies. I once used fabric to cover all the mirrors in my apartment as a kind of precaution, a way to keep me from myself. And isn't that what I long for? A removal. A vacation as a removal from the home. Sleep as a removal from consciousness. Art making as a removal from reality. Writing essays does that for me removes me from my life. The personal essay has been accused of narcissism, and maybe fairly so. I do write about myself. But something happens in the translation from my brain to my hand. I instinctually want to tell a story that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. However, I possess neither the capability to remember my beginning, nor the ability to foresee my ending. I'm all middle, and it's all chaos, until I assign meaning to it, which is where the only hope for satisfaction lies. If I look in a mirror, I should see myself, as you do in Ninfa. If I write about myself, I should recognize my life. However, as soon as it's written, my life goes elsewhere. It leaves me alone in the water. It looks for something better elsewhere, and I don't blame it. Being alone doesn't bother me the way it seems to bother a lot of people. I have my best ideas when I'm alone, but I've also been alone for a long enough period of time to understand how delicate the line between sanity and insanity is, or how delicate my line is. I feel myself slip a bit. If I live long enough, I'll see, or others will see, because I'll just be in one long, continuous dream that makes sense only to me. When I saw my grandmother act that way, dreaming at the end of her life, I played along, because to hold a mirror up to her logic would be cruel. In Bluets, Maggie Nelson wrote, Loneliness is solitude with a problem. By this definition, solitude is peace, and loneliness is peace with a kind of fear, the idea that something is missing. As an American, I find that this idea makes sense. In this country, full is interchangeable with good. A full day means you're productive. A full life means you're satisfied, and a full stomach means you ate enough. But what accounts for a difference in appetite for life? What if I am content being very alone and very still? What if I look in the mirror and see a different world than the one I live in? James Richardson, from his book, Vectors. The worst part of fear is not knowing what to do. And often, you only have to ask, what would I do if I were not afraid to know what to do and do it and not be afraid?
This is what I think about when I fear my own writing. What if I can't make it perfect? Perfection may be a useless goal, but it's the only thrill left. If I were unafraid, I would write more efficiently. If you were unafraid, you might understand that your reflection is a kind of love, because you perceive the illusion as a companion. I believe in the possibility of love as salvation. I believe in the possibility that all animals are social and must physically see each other and interact in order to survive. I believe that I have failed myself again and again, but that I can still look in a mirror and not want to die. That's what they call a step in the right direction. I believe in metaphors, that I am you and that you are me, and that we were swimming at the same speed in different pools. I believe it's a lie that one species is better than another. Mine simply felt guilty for failing you, and so it attempted to help you. That's how favors work. I've never written directly to a bird before, but I see myself in you, which perhaps only speaks to the human condition and nothing else. So why write a letter at all? Well, I think a letter can be a kind of hand, and a hand can be a kind of mirror. And so I hold myself up to you. I remember you in the rearview mirror. I see you lift your wings in flight. I hear your call, and then I listen for it again. Mother shelf pinnacled me or Tums. An excerpt from Camp Marmalade. Good morning, punctuated self. Lee Krasner proves it. Stay awake to the redemptive glyph. scrutinized first chapter and thought every statement dead, wrong, except chartreuse and neon orange. Cough hurts right lung, even when I don't cough the right lung has a lumpy vanilla crunch feeling in my arteries, too. On mother shelf, pinnacled me, or tongues, or tongues. Hans Belmer receives hate mail, USPS, grand bag of slain doll parts. Irenic or oneric. 
like 4-H club for gay hoofers and um, and Una O'Neill will be there and Nicole Kidman, good Nicole, not bad Nicole, like Nicole versus Apollo Nicole, but Moon isn't versus Apollo. What is the Harlequin romance equivalent of friends, Romans, countrymen? an ob-ob word like obscene or oblate or obsequy to stretch one's loins across the public domain why do shrinks even when off duty refuse warmth and ebullience or do I specialize in Non-ebullient shrinks. Use her talky head to block out the blinding sun. Tidbit was dead woman's shared tidbit and also transcendent and now she's dead and I never told her we shared tidbit and transcendent seeing I never sang for my father with my mother long ago in a movie theater be glad you never Sang for your father. Be glad you never sang for your father. Trying to prove that I was Jewish despite ignorance of the covenant. I saw a disgruntled bride in flip-flops lift her wedding dress and walk at rush hour past Penn Station, stretched out like her dead nurse mother, whose malted milk taste I still can't fathom. Mother whose car we wrecked in stop-and-go traffic en route to Richard III or the Oristyle. but not necessarily approving of the reach. Which Kafka was I glad to meet in Mykonos dream or Massenet opera that might not exist like La Boulia Bays, a long river Cutting through Manon. A good river 
advocating conversion to frivolity. who expresses recognition when seeing me. Rose glow reflected on dull warehouse, blue shined flat and pink by emigration of rival color, sped up from pink introjection, wanting to subdue him in a scenario of erotic torture based on my thinness and his fatness. Woman who ran a French restaurant in St. Croix, I envied your boozy, leathery ease, your motorcycle finality. Writing on a paper napkin, a few uncausal enlightenment nouns like junk or dumbness or Dillinger or sex pot or dysfunction. Two hours of Giddy threshold consciousness A few stunned lyrics to signalize my stupor Again the hilly outlines Pompeii lump as the Jew hears it The Jew means not a generality But a specific listener Who actually likes sex and told me so unless I'm this Jew too double crossing the earlier spread out novel Jew stiff box for requested pearl granted but lost a pearl I didn't understand though I craved it as girl signed under night cover of boy dawn everyone as a nadir, a nausea, even nausea, as a nausea. I spoke about the solidity of nouns, a you in the regard, a you in the regarded eggy or jizzy corner. My throat is not my own, it has become a colony of national interests. Green soot posing as a lake, cover cream of spinach soup. My mother's body when she suspected food poisoning or experienced its greeny symptoms. Logical, except when I teach my baby sister the art of shoplifting. Morton Feldman was once my mother's friend. Is that fact her property? 
We have in common a predilection for killing plants. No ability to keep a plant alive. That's an exaggeration. Three roses in her side yard. Maybe more. Carlotta, my unmet, unphotographed stepmother. To designate her with regal sobriquet. Another succulent covering upon surface with scum skimming it with coating off my block of flats. The building was built in the 1930s and retains a number of the original architectural and ornamental features. According to an estate agent's bump that came sliding under my door, all the windows boast painted steel with long horizontal panes and curved windows. The corners are curved into bays. The very thought of windows boasting, I think. I wrap the humble brag of my kitchen window with a fingernail. I wonder when I had last cleaned its surface. I dropped the estate agent's leaflet into the recycling and went to watch a documentary about birds. Apparently magpies feel grief and on occasion hold funeral-type gatherings for dead members of their community. Some magpies have even been observed laying wreaths made of straw beside their comrades' bodies. All the experts on the documentary use very emotive language. With the curtains drawn and the evening settling down, the television throws strange blue shapes up and across the walls of my living room. Wrapped around a small communal garden, the block of flats is shaped like a horseshoe or a crab's pincer or a stiff hug. I have a good view of everything that goes on in the garden from my vantage point on the fourth story. The only people that ever use the garden are an elderly couple from way down on the ground floor, always out there tending to its borders and tussling with the brambles. According to one of my neighbours, this couple moved into the block when it was brand new. I see them day after day, deadheading various things, dibbling various soils, and making slow but steady watering can progress around its perimeter. It sounds ridiculous, but from my flat I could never make out the gender of this couple. They both had close, or rather close-cropped grey hair and seemed to keep a uniform of shapeless, figure-swamping jumpers. 
they whistled rather than spoke to one another. Always the same songs with the same low notes. The bird documentary taught me that the Eurasian magpie's genus and species is Pika Pika. We have magpies sometimes in the garden. I see them swaggering around in their glossy tuxedos and imagine all of my neighbours counting their number as we spot them from our windows. One for sorrow, two for joy. I once heard a child from downstairs shout through an open window at a solitary bird. Good morning, Mr Magpie. How is your lady wife today? The elderly couple had been pruning one of the plum trees and both visibly jumped at the shout. The magpie in question seemed unruffled, as far as I could see, and I remember that I closed my own window. The noise of the unoiled latch had sounded like the word picker twice. The segment on grieving magpies finished, and the documentary turned its attention to a type of bowerbird found in Australia. It is best known for its courtship rituals. The male combs his surroundings for any bright blue flowers, blue tchotchkes or scraps of blue fabric that catch his eye, and then presents them together in an arrangement in order to impress potential mates. The result is a little Eve Klein curated explosion in the undergrowth, and a nervously pleased male hopping about, tugging blue artefacts and trinkets to lie at certain angles for best effect. I watch as the camera tracks a bird approaching the documentary maker's tent, eyeing up their production notes, then is filmed making a dash for a blue pen lid, skipping away with a delighted haste to add to his collection. The documentary's narrator doesn't mention this fact, but I notice, when she pops up on screen, that the female bowerbird's eye is exactly the same shade of blue. Three for a girl, four for a boy. It is morning now and word is going around about the block that one of the wandering, gardening couple is not well. Too ill to leave their bed. The woman in the next door flat tells me that if the elderly couple could have been married, they would be celebrating their 60th anniversary this month. I don't ask how she knows this. Is 60 gold? I ask, putting the recycling outside my door. 50 years is gold, she replied. 60 would be diamond. At lunch, I look out of my boasting window and watch the single gardener go about their tasks. It is twice the work and takes twice as long. The garden looks impossibly empty, with only one of them there, and for the first time since I've lived there, I realise that today there is no whistling. As I watch the unpaired gardener approach the plum tree, I see them reach out. They touch the tree's outermost leaves with very gentle hands. The father was a professional manipulator of spinal bones, and the mother was a skilled scraper, dauber, and suctionist. They enjoyed playing together, tennis and golf, as well as games of chance. They were slim and tan and drove sporty European cars. One didn't mind his lack of hair because he had physical vigor and a nicely shaped head, or maybe it was his money. She kept her hair chemically kinky, a nonchalant frizz. In the morning they liquefied fruits, and in the evening they steamed leaves and heads in a large metal pot. The breast of a bird, split, skinned, 
turned slowly in the dim yellow theater of the microwave oven. There was a dog, of course. It was big and blonde with an expensive heritage. The dog's name, it eludes me, but it was something to do with victory, royalty, luxury. And there were two children, an adolescent boy and a prepubescent girl. I was blonde too, but of a different sort. My pedigree was mixed. For a brief period, they tried me. They took me on a trip with them, all of us together in a large van with a small television in the back. A second adolescent boy was auditioning as well. We drove for a day, then arrived at the stucco condo that was to be the site of our happiness and relaxation. I understood my role as companion to the girl, but my exuberances could not excite her. She watched me with the disinterest of the statistician she would become. To the mother and father I went then, but because they had recently cleaned themselves and put on fresh, light-colored clothing, my approach caused a great deal of alarm. The boys then I could not avoid. At the pool, they bared their hideous bodies to swim, or just because it was hot and they were proud. They strutted, huge and spindly, jackal-faced, inflamed, malformed. They called to me. I dropped straight in. When I tried to come up, they held me down as long as was funny. I understood this as their birthright. On they would go, a lifetime of dunking, of the pleasures of the dunker. I suppose I was asking for it, the way I would hide beneath a piece of furniture and cry out when frightened. I was easily riled. It didn't take much to spook me. I was a soft thing, very grabbable, with large wet eyes and a tender nose. At mealtime, I ate at top speed, jealously eyeing the bowls and plates and the rates at which they emptied into mouths other than my own. Here was a group of individuals who took their time with food and did not appear to derive any particular enjoyment from consuming it. In a corner, the dog daintily took its kibble, coin by coin, and never approached the table to beg. The day we were to go out on the motorboat, the girl began to bleed. The mother took her into a rest stop bathroom and stood outside the stall while the girl attempted to insert what her mother had given her. The girl cried. She said she could not do it. This went on. The phenomenon had recently been explained to us in the music room at school, where many of the female teachers, as well as most of the mothers, had assembled one afternoon. On a table at the front of the room sat a large human torso, gruesomely separated from the rest of its body, vivisected to reveal the organs which were brightly colored and removable. The lights were dimmed and a movie was projected onto a screen. In the movie, some girls had a sleepover at a friend's house. The friend's mother poured pancake batter into a hot frying pan in the morning. She made a large pancake in the shape of the female reproductive system to illustrate what had happened to one of the girls in the night. Then, together, they ate the pancakes. The lights were turned on again. Blood, sanitary napkins, and the importance of personal hygiene were discussed. Otherwise, I said loudly, you might start attracting flies. 
The teachers and mothers, my mother, all turned to look at me then. It was a look I have come to recognize. My companion emerged at last, triumphant but shaken. Mother and daughter washed their hands in happy communion, talking to each other's reflection in the mirror. Then they turned and saw that I was still leaning on the wall, cramped between two dryers. There came a change in posture like a sigh. Come along, clipped the mother. The boys have waited long enough. We were late getting out on the water. It was crowded with other boats, and ours burned your arm if you leaned on it. The father popped a beer and revved the motor. We bounced along. At last the father found us some solitude. One by one, they dove gracefully into the water and surfaced, laughing. They floated and flipped their bodies around. The father did it one-handed, his beer held aloft. I stood at the edge of the boat. The steps dissolved into thick green water. I wore a man's heavy t-shirt over my bathing suit. I said it was because I burned quickly, which was also true. Come on, shouted the father. Do it, shouted his boy. Little baby, shouted the second boy. The dog barked and drank the water in huge gulps. The girl and her mother swam quietly around each other. The girl disappeared first. When they emerged, they were far away, a pair of slicked, shining heads moving quickly out of the picture. Now the mother is dead. The dog is dead. The girl has a little boy. The boy has two wives and three girls. The father has a new dog and a new wife and a new house. The second boy has all of these and more. Like so many things in my head, this information arrived uninvited and insists on hanging around. I'm gonna find a paper doll that I can call my own.